So one of the most impactful books that I read last year um, was a book about a young woman named Yeonmi Park, and it was the story of how she escaped from North Korea. Um, it was an amazing story, amazing in many ways because of how sad her life was. Um, in her story, there were so many stories, um, so many unique things she went through, uh, hearing what it was like to grow up in North Korea, barely being able to survive and uh, worshiping a dictator as a god, um, her father getting involved in legal business to support their family, him getting arrested, and that being the catalyst for uh, Yeonmi and her mom to decide to escape. Um, she finally did escape and was actually um, in China, and the people that helped her break out turned out to be uh, in the trafficking business, um, and they married her off against her will uh, to a guy who turned out to be a gangster. Um, she was married to him, supposedly married, um, for so many years, helping with his business again to just survive, until finally, uh, through an online forum, she found someone who helped her and her mother uh, get out. Um, they were helped by missionaries um, who, unfortunately, though they were helping people, they were um, false teachers and uh, spiritually abusive in many ways. But nonetheless, they trained them to walk across the deserts of Mongolia to eventually be picked up by the Mongolian government border agents um, who were going to send them right back to North Korea but in an amazing intervention, somehow, um, they ended up being sent to South Korea instead. And what was so fascinating, honestly, about reading this biography was, even though all of those parts of her story were so incredible, one of the most fascinating parts um, of reading her life was actually when she got to South Korea. Because there was still a lot of story left when she got there. And the reason that it was so fascinating is you would think, after someone has gone through all of those things, and they've got to a place in South Korea where all of these freedoms they've never had before, you would think that the most difficult part of their life would be past them. But what she actually explains is in a lot of ways, um, South Korea was one of the most difficult parts of her life. And it was not because South Korea was a bad place at all, it was the opposite. Um, she had gone from thinking of the world in such a strict enslaved way that she had come to expect only so much good in the world. And all of a sudden, in South Korea, she had so much good that it was actually hard to believe. She had gone from being able to make basically no decisions except whatever is necessary to survive um, to all of a sudden having all the time in the world to do whatever she'd like. She could get a job. She could be ex uh, educated. And then even after doing all that, she could still spend her free time doing things she wanted to do. Um, she had gone from spending the little amounts of money she had on what she needed to survive to suddenly having a bank account and being able to save money and being able to use money she had to buy not only things she needed, but things she wanted. Previously, she had to live off of the small amount of land that she had near her house with her sister and mother and father to survive, and suddenly she could go anywhere. She could get on a subway, which was an intimidating experience to learn how to do, and she could go anywhere in the city. Um, or she could get on a plane and she could literally go to another country, what was supposedly before for her so impossible. And one of the reasons that this was so difficult uh, was not because it was such a bad experience, but because it was an overwhelmingly good experience. Every morning then she would wake up, the reason her new life was so difficult is because it seemed too good to be true. 
I think for us that might be hard to understand having never gone through the same situation as her, but even today actually Pastor Josh was telling me a similar story about a woman who escaped North Korea and her son who is in North Korea was actually allowed to leave North Korea himself to try to get his mom to go back to North Korea. He had lived under the regime so long and had believed so much of what they'd been told to believe that he was convinced North Korea was the best place to live and that his mother who escaped would actually want to bring him back. And Yeon Mi went through a very similar experience because it can almost be traumatic to realize that a good thing is almost too good to be true. And I think as we get to Philippians chapter 3, as we've already started last week, Paul is getting at something very similar. We talked last week about these false teachers called Judaizers who were explaining to Christians that the way to spiritual maturity was not in Christ, but was in following Jewish law. And you would think that people who accepted Christ and who knew Christ was everything they needed for salvation and sanctification, you would think they would never even think of adopting something else of adding Jewish law to Christ. But the reality is that even for Christians, Christ can be too good to be true. Christ can be too good to be true. The Bible tells us all over the place that all the Old Testament was moving towards Christ. And the New Testament is explaining that everything God promises fulfilled in Christ. And yet, because we are born in sin, because we are born into spiritual slavery, we have a hard time believing that Christ is really everything we need. And yet he is. And the reason is because God has promised this is true. I was reading a blogger today, and he was actually explaining in a review for a different book that was written, a book called Too Good to Be False, that Jesus can almost seem hard to believe because of how good he is. But in fact, this blogger was explaining that that is actually a proof that Jesus must be true. He explains, skeptics tell us that the personality and deeds of Jesus were like a game of telephone. Myths were breathed into the story of Jesus to make him seem more significant. But we have hugely divergent ideas of greatness. So he's saying many people have different ideas of what a perfect person should be like. And somehow we have four biographies. He's referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that point to a man who has perfect character, compassion, authority, and leadership. Jesus's perfection of character is uniform by every Christian writer that we have in the New Testament. But he is so unlike the kind of perfect man we would invent. Did you catch that? He's so different from the kind of perfect man that we would invent, which is another way of saying this. Jesus is so good to be true that God must be telling the truth about him. And this is something that is so essential to understand so that Christians are reminded that what we have in Christ seems too good to be true, but isn't. And ultimately, that's why we need to be reminded how important it is to know Christ and everything we have to gain in Christ. Let me read to you Philippians 3, verse 7 
to verse 11, and our focus is going to be verses 9 and 10 and 11. This is what Paul says. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is explaining to us is what we have to gain in knowing Christ. And that's what we're covering today. Paul is going to explain what we gain in knowing Christ. Three things, in verse 9, in verse 10, and in verse 11. What do we have to gain when we know Christ? The first thing comes in verse 9, and it's this. The first thing we have to gain in Christ is justification. We gain justification. In verse 9, Paul says, I am found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Righteousness means what it takes to be right with God. That's what righteousness is. And Paul explains in verse 9, there's two kinds of righteousness. There's one that God accepts and one he doesn't. There's one that doesn't meet his mark and one that does. And the one that doesn't work is the first one he mentions in verse 9. It is a righteousness that comes from the law that is my own. Paul explains this righteousness doesn't work because of two reasons. Number one, it's my own righteousness. I, as a fallen human being, cannot do all of the right things required of me by God. But secondly, number two, it's a righteousness that comes from the law. God has explained how right I must be to be right with God, and I can't do that. So I have two problems. I have a rule-keeping problem, and I also have a selfishness problem. I can't do all of the right things, and then even the right things I want to do, I can't do in the right way. That's my problem before God. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6 that we mentioned last time. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that is exactly Paul's point. He's saying that is a kind of righteousness that isn't worth anything, it's worth nothing, which means I should turn to God to ask for his help. And when he turns to God, and when he's reminded of Christ, he sees everything, all the righteousness that was necessary to be right from God was provided in Jesus Christ. Justification. It means Jesus made us right with God. Justification means Jesus made us right with God, and he made us right with God because the perfect human life we were supposed to live, Christ lived. Christ is the righteousness of God because he lived the righteous life we should have lived. Jesus even says this, to be right with God, you must be perfect 
as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, and that wasn't a metaphor. And yet right from the beginning of the Gospels, we see Jesus explaining why he came, not just to die, but to live. In Matthew chapter 3.15, when he's baptized by John the Baptist, he explains, the reason I'm being baptized is because it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And the author of Hebrews explains the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus didn't come to live his life for no reason. Jesus came to live a human life, not just to teach us. He came to live a perfect life that he would then give to us as if we lived that life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and 24, Jesus committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died for our sin, and he made the slate clean. In God's eyes, we've never committed sin in Christ. But that's not all he did. Because that blank slate that the punishment for our sins accomplished needs to be filled with good things. We need to have not done any of the bad things we've done, and we need to do all the good things God requires. We need the righteousness of God, and that is what Christ gave to us. It's called the great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his perfection. And this is what the Old Testament was talking about. Jeremiah explains it multiple times where he explains that the Messiah would be called Yahweh our righteousness. So he's saying the Messiah is going to be perfect like God, Yahweh's righteousness. But he's going to be called our righteousness. Because the Messiah is going to live a life that he will then give to us as if we lived it. It's like when we're called into God's royal courtroom. We come basically naked and exposed. We have nothing to offer God. And yet his perfect life is like royal robes put on us. So when we come into the courtroom, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus's perfect life. And that's exactly what the Father wanted Christ to do. That's exactly why he sent him. I like how Alec Motier, who's a commentator, he said this, Jesus Christ is the full expression of the righteousness of God, his words and teaching, his inner character and outer deeds, the works he accomplished, his relationships, his attitude to himself and his obedience to God, the absolute completeness of all he was taught and did in a word, Everything that could ever be seen in him, said of him, or sought from him is absolutely what the righteous God requires. The Lord Jesus is the sum total of all that even God could ever ask. That's amazing. Now this, listen well, this is why this is so important. Paul is not explaining to you the right answer. That's not Paul's goal. Paul is not trying to say, listen, there's a test you need to complete to go to heaven, and it's one question. Here's the answer so you can pass the test and you can get into heaven. That is not what Paul is explaining. Paul's not giving you the answer to a test. He's talking to you about the relationship he's experienced with a person. A person who has personally invited him into heaven 
and would personally invite anyone into heaven who would come and seek justification through him. Paul wasn't amazed that he knew the correct answer of how to be saved. He was amazed that Jesus Christ personally wanted to save him. That's what was amazing. That justification wasn't some vague general offer to anyone. It was something that Jesus personally offers to anyone who would come to him because anyone who would come to him and recognize their justification is in him is someone who God would have to come to reveal their sinfulness, to do something supernatural in their life, to help them recognize they are at the end of themselves and could do the one thing that is counter to everything we want to do, which he explains is have faith in Christ. Have faith in Christ. Faith means I'm not doing what's right to get into heaven, but that I trust someone else, Christ, is going to bring me into heaven. Faith means that I trust God to bring a sinner like me into his kingdom by grace, no matter how insecure I feel about my failures. Faith means that though the gospel seems too good to be true, it is true because God says it's true. Faith means that I was lost in sin, but I was found in Christ. Faith means that I will live forever because Christ lived for me and is still living for me now and personally watching over me now. Faith means that even though Jesus knows every detail of my unrighteousness, he's never going to revoke his righteousness off of me. Faith means that no matter what I do, what I get wrong, what I mess up on, or what details I have out of order, Jesus will not leave me or forsake me. Knowing Christ means gaining a justification personally delivered from God himself. That's the first thing we have to gain in Christ. We have justification. And Paul immediately leads to the second one in verse 10. And the second thing we gain in Christ is sanctification. And sanctification means the ability to live and grow in righteousness. In Christ, we have the ability to gain and grow in righteousness. Verse 10, Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul explains he wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. As one pastor explained it, conversion is nothing less than a resurrection. Through justification, we gain the righteousness of Christ we need for salvation. But through sanctification, that same Jesus who saved us, sanctifies us. Though we're saved by his righteousness, Christ promises that slowly over time, we will grow in righteousness. In the Father's eyes, we are righteous like Christ, but we now also have the power to live more like Christ. That is the power of his resurrection. Remember, according to the Judaizers, you had to do everything necessary for salvation. But now in Christ, Christ is explaining to you, you get to feel the power of righteousness working in your life because Christ already dealt with everything for salvation and also wants you to look like him more and more until you reach salvation, until you reach heaven. What Paul realized after meeting Christ is that the very idea of living for Christ not only doing the right things, but doing them from the right heart, from the right attitude. All of that is impossible without Christ's help. I need the power of his resurrection to do what Christ requires of me, 
and to do it for the right reason, to do it for Christ. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus died and rose again. And because I'm in Christ, my old life, my old attitude, habits, sin patterns, love of self more than anything else, all of that is dead with Christ. That's how united to I am I am. And now I live to live more like Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And this is what Paul already mentioned in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. As you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. When we know Christ, we gain God's resurrection power to live. And remember the important clarification. This is not you must act like Christ. That's not what this is. Christ is saying, I've given you the power to love me and therefore live like me. Not to act like Christ, but the power to have the attitude of Christ. That's why Paul, before saying power of resurrection, he says, that I may know him. The reason we grow in Christ is because we know Christ and we grow in Christ because Christ is walking beside us every step we take. Christ is personally guiding our actions to be like him. But the important thing I really, really want you to note is the thing that Paul says right after that in verse 10. Notice what Paul pairs together. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What he explains is that suffering is a necessary part of knowing Christ and becoming like Christ. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's already talked previously about the ability to get through suffering, but now he's saying you need suffering to become like Christ. It's a little different. The question is, why? Why do we need suffering to know Christ? I want to give you very quickly four reasons, four reasons within this that are essential so you understand suffering as important to your sanctification. Number one, suffering is where we truly learn to imitate Christ. Suffering is where we truly learn to imitate Christ. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his footsteps. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, where he, he says, you should not only believe in Christ, but you must suffer for his sake. Christ proved his love and his power and his trust in the Father when Christ suffered, which means we learn the same 
when we go through the same thing. When we suffer, we learn to be Christ-like when we suffer. The school of hard knocks is essential for sanctification. We suffer evil and we don't return evil. People hate us and we forgive them. People are unloving and unkind to us and we are kind and loving in return. And in these ways, we learn just who Christ is because Christ had to do the same thing. And Christ proved his goodness in the context of the badness. And that's really the second point of why suffering is so important. Number two, when we suffer, we truly experience how much Christ loved us. Suffering is hard, and when we suffer, it will be hard. But when we suffer, we learn just how much worse Christ's suffering was. And when we see his love in the context of suffering, and we suffer, we realize experientially just how much Christ loved us. When we see how difficult it is to go through suffering, when we see how difficult it is to forgive people who make us suffer. And then we learn Christ did the same thing. And his suffering was much more unjust than any of our suffering will be. Then we realize just how deeply Christ loved us. But I think there's a third reason that's in there. And it's kind of the same, but it's a little different, and it's this. We can only experience how powerful God's power is when we suffer. Suffering is the context to measure more of God's sanctifying power. Suffering is the necessary context. We're put into difficult situations, not because God is trying to make you prove how much you love him. We are put into difficult situations so God can prove his power to us. That is why we get put into difficult situations. I read this week that there was a woman who was released from prison after an eight-year sentence for murdering her mother. And this woman is being praised as a hero on the internet by people mainly your age. And the reason is because this woman's mother, whom she murdered, was abusive. And so it was seen as something incredibly powerful that not relying on the authorities who are untrustworthy, but relying on herself and her supposed independence and power to take justice into her own hands. And the reality is that that's not what's truly powerful. That's a terrible thing. And it is not something to be applauded. Because the reality is true power, something truly amazing, is for that woman to have forgiven her mother. That's powerful. That's supernatural. And when you are put in difficult situations and you do something you could have never imagined you could possibly do, that is when you realize the power of Christ's resurrection in you. When you forgive someone who seems unforgivable, when you go through something tragic and you're gentle to people who can't handle your brokenness well. Trusting God is easy when things are going well. 
But when you trust God when all hope seems lost, that's proof that God's power is keeping you with him. That's God proving to you that he will not leave you and he will not forsake you. Therefore, we need the difficult to experience how divine God's power truly is. And that's really where we get to a fourth reason, which is this. Suffering is the constant reminder that we need to rely on Jesus. We don't need to rely on Jesus if we can depend on ourselves, but the reality is we can't. And the reason we can't is because whether our comfortable modern Western society realizes it or not, life is mostly difficult. Life in a broken world is mostly difficult. Pain is the most normal part of reality. I like how Dane Ortland explains this. Pain is not the islands of our lives, it is the ocean. Disappointment or letdown is, not, is the stage of life in which all of life unfolds. It is not an occasional blip on an otherwise comfortable and smooth life. But a crucial part of growth, therefore, is a humble openness to receiving the bitterness of life as God's gentle way of drawing us out of the misery of self and more deeply into spiritual maturity. That is amazing. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. All sorts of people in this life want to be as comfortable as possible until they die. And they're ignoring how terribly uncomfortable it is to be in a broken world that God never designed to be as such. And yet we, in going through us, have an opportunity to be latched on and united with creation and grown for home. And we get to rely on Christ and realize the value of our life until we get home and realize that we're given something good to do and we get to recognize all the good that we are called to be because suffering gives us a context to rely on Christ more. And those are at least four. There's many other reasons, but why Paul equates sanctification and suffering together. But all of those four things are part of the second thing, and Paul mentions a third thing, and it's the most glorious of all of the things that he mentions, and it's in verse 11, where Paul says his greatest goal in life is by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And Paul is referring to something called glorification. Glorification is a doctrine where we gain an eternal and perfect relationship with Jesus in heaven. That's glorification. Glory, remaking, the end, everything finally finished, happily ever after with Jesus. One thing that so many people get wrong about Christianity is what salvation is all about. So many people think salvation is all about getting out of hell. That's not what salvation is about. Some people get closer and they say salvation is about getting into heaven. Also true, but closer. But it is still wrong. Salvation isn't about getting out of hell or getting into heaven. It's about being where Christ is. It's not about getting out of something. It's going into something more fully and more complete than we have now. This is one thing I learned this year listening to a 
lecturer go through the book of Exodus. If you're like me and you grew up with the Prince of Egypt, you think that all the fascinating parts of Exodus are when the people are getting out of Egypt. And you think it's done when that part is done. It's done when Jesus declares his glorious victory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians by having the Red Sea part, the Israelites go through, the Egyptians come in, the Red Sea toppling them, and finally all of God's enemies are destroyed and there are the Israelites free. And then we think that's the end of the story. But that is like the prologue to what Exodus is actually about. Because Exodus isn't about getting out of Egypt. Exodus is about getting to the mountain because that's where God is. And all the parts that we actually think are really boring about Exodus are the most exciting parts of Exodus because it's all about getting to live with God. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to tell us about Jesus. Everything about salvation and sanctification is building up our hearts to realize we don't want to get out of this world. We want to get to Christ. And God has promised that in Christ, that's exactly where we're heading. And what's key to really understand is back when Paul was Saul, I don't think he was that excited about meeting God. Think about how he grew up. When you have a legalistic, rules-based view of God, that's not a God you're very excited to meet right away. Because he's going to tell you what you did wrong. He's going to go through everything you did. And maybe he's going to punish you. And there's no way you can be sure that you're saved. And then he met Christ. And then he met Christ. And all of that changed. Because now heaven meant glorification. It meant transformation. It meant decontamination from this world. No suffering, no pain, or sin anymore. But that wasn't why it was so great. Paul recognized for the first time that all of those things God put in place for this reason, so we could have unrestrained, unrestricted access to him. He could get rid of everything that was in the way of having a relationship with perfect conditions. It would last forever and it would be purified. That's what death is for Christians. As Tim Keller explains, all death can do now to Christians is make our lives infinitely better. And that's exactly what Paul meant when he said in Philippians 1 where he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain and my, depart is to, my desire is to depart and be with Christ because that is far better, far better. All Christians are homesick. We want to be with Christ. And the more we look at our justification and the more we recognize our sanctification, the more we long for glorification. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him as he is, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He's saying the more you can recognize who you are in Christ, what Christ is making you into, and where Christ is bringing you, the more you long for that day to come. 
And that's really how we need to close this message so you see what Paul is trying to get at. Chapter 3 of Philippians is about knowing Christ. And verses 9, 10, and 11 are trying to explain to you why you need to know Christ. And there's something you need to recognize about the three things he brought up. Justification is about our past. Christ fixed our past. Sanctification is about our present. He's making us more like him now. He has a plan for all of your life and every event in it, including suffering. And glorification is about the future. It's where we're headed, where we're bound, because Christ has promised to bring us home. Past, present, future. That's your whole life. That's your whole life. And so when Paul is talking about knowing Christ, he's telling you, you need to make knowing Christ everything your life is about. Everything. And it can be nothing less. I heard a quote this week where a man was explaining what secularism is. If something is secular. And previously to reading his statements on it, I used to think secularism meant absence of God. Something that's secular is something that doesn't care about God. And he explained that's not what secularism actually is. Secularism means God isn't central in worship. That's what secularism means. And in that way, his argument was this. Christians can be secular. Christians can be people who on paper worship God and care about him, but they restrict God to one part of their life. And that's not what Christ wants you to do. Don't be a secular Christian. Don't be secular at all. What Christ is explaining in this passage is that Christ needs to be everything or he's nothing. But if you make Christ everything, he's dealt with everything. It's imperfect people who approach Christ. It's people who struggle to stop living in the flesh. It's people who know they're not good enough for heaven. It's people who know that going to church is difficult. It's people who don't trust what God is going to do with their futures, but they want to know Christ. And that's something that God has promised to do in anyone who would come to him, to know him at all. Because if you want to know Christ at all, Christ has absolutely promised that he will make him your all. That's Christ's promise. And it's why you need to know Christ.